reading from Genesis. God tells sinful Adam that he has lost the life of paradise and that his seed will bruise the serpent's head. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl in your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. The word of the Lord. In looking at this passage and thinking about it and reflecting obviously God made things a lot harder for us but I think they got a lot more complicated right I mean the relationship between us and nature and especially the relationship between man and woman and when I started thinking about it in those terms of complication I really thought of like, wow, we, not only because of that, we make things complicated for ourselves, right? We take our schedules, our relationships, work, life, kids, all that, and especially culture, right? (sighs) Culture. Um, More so than ever, things are busy, fast. And in this big cluster of complication, I think we often compound it making mountains out of molehills. I mean, I see that every day. Right? I, I, I know that if there's something going on in my life, some issue I have, often I worry. And I go through all of these scenarios of what the outcomes would be. And I get stressed or you know, worry about it. And more often than not, the resolution comes out just fine. It works out. And I look back and say, wow, I really worried about nothing. I'm always trying to keep things simple. i trying to. It's a process. The fall was bound to happen, right? Any of us would have done the same thing as Eve or Adam. 
But I think that because of the complication, turning to God and asking for simplification from him is what we need to do. We can toil by ourselves all we want, but God will make things easier. And especially this time of year, right? Christmas, holidays, you see a lot and people say, well, I'm just going to take it easy, slow down, see family. And that's, I think that's really important. I, I, I know myself, I try to do that. But it's a process. It's not easy. But I think turning to God is, is the answer. In fact, in the passage, there's a premonition, right, where he said, he will crush his head, meaning man will crush the serpent's head, a premonition of his coming again. And I think because of that, we need to be intentional about decisions, about maybe simplifying, but making decisions in your life. Because if you're not intentional about what you decide to do, I think culture will make those decisions for you and sweep along, sweep you along wherever it decides to go. Yes, God did punish us for disobeying. But with that premonition, I believe he wants us to return to him. He wants us to seek him, to confide in him. Let him simplify the things for you. He will. Let him make the molehills out of the mountains. A reading from the prophet Isaiah. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoiced at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. <clears throat> for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do you need a Savior? Do you need a Savior? Isaiah speaks a word of prophecy to the nation of Israel around 700 B.C., a people he called walking in darkness. The nation was once again sinking in sin and falling under enemy attack. Soon they would be overtaken by foreign forces, lose their land, and taken into captivity. Israel needed a savior. But you see, Isaiah is not just talking to the nation of Israel. He's talking to us. And he's not just talking about physical captivity. The deeper truth, the truth we can all relate with, is that there's a captivity of the soul, of the spirit, a slavery called sin. And deep down, our souls know it well. We see this captivity in the world all around us, the darkness of death, despair, pain, suffering, and mourning. But we also each have dark places in our own hearts, sins that weigh us down and stop us from being who God has called us to be. Sometimes we're held captive of sin for so long that we get used to it, we justify it, or we think we can never break free. It may be an old struggle, it may be a new one, but if we're honest with ourselves, we know full well the sin that holds us captive and separates us from God, and we're tired of being held in chains. Often we try to find a way out of the darkness ourselves, but our human efforts always fall short. We look to other humans We put our hope in things like money, cars, houses, jobs. We try to numb ourselves with drugs or alcohol or food or whatever temporarily soothes us. But inside, we're still captive. We need to be rescued. We need a Savior. Isaiah knew this. God knows this. Reading this portion of Isaiah reminded me of the Christmas hymn, O Holy Night. Do you remember that first verse? Long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. This is our condition without Christ, walking in sin and darkness, weary from the world, pining and waiting for more. The question this morning is, Are you tired of your own sin? Are you weary of trying to save yourself? Are you ready for light to come into your darkness to set you free? Do you need a Savior? If so, Isaiah gives us hope of the one to come, the Messiah, the Christ. Motivated by love and mercy, God bursts through the darkness and sends his own Son. He knows we aren't powerful enough to break the chains of sin and darkness, but his love can. A child will be born. He will come to earth and dwell with us. He will die for us and be raised to life for us. 
He will break through the darkness of sin for you and for me. Into the darkness of this world will come a sunburst of redeeming light, the one who will be born, the one who will come again in glory. And he will be called a wonderful counselor. That means a king with a plan and the authority to execute that plan. A mighty God, everlasting father, a good and benevolent parent, and the prince of peace. And his love is for all who turn to him. He will bring wholeness. He will bring well-being and peace that we just can't get on our own. And it is the zeal of the Lord Almighty himself that will accomplish this. So we can have faith that God will do as he promises. Take heart. Have hope. God himself is breaking through the darkness to come for you and to set you free. And to those who receive this gift, this son, they will be awestruck with gratitude and wonder and worship and praise. Because if you know sin and captivity well, you will rejoice when the king, the true light, bursts into your darkness. May I suggest that now we each pause and reflect on the sinful places in our own hearts and invite Jesus to come into those places with his light. The Son, the Christ child, is coming for you. He will break through the darkness for you. There's no need to live in captivity any longer. The light of the world has come into the world. Will you receive him into your heart this Christmas? Amen. A reading from the Gospel of Luke. The angel Gabriel salutes the Blessed Virgin Mary. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. 
for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. The word of the Lord. seems to me that what God asked Mary to do was completely unreasonable. Completely unreasonable. First of all, there's a virgin birth. That's kind of pretty much unreasonable. Kind of unexpected kind of a thing. And then he asked Mary to be unwed and with child. To be a pregnant person engaged. That's hard in our society. It was even harder in those days. Very hard thing to be. And then, through Gabriel, God put an intense amount of parental pressure on Mary. He told Mary that her son, her child, would be great. That God would give him the throne of David and he would reign over the house of Jacob forever. Can you imagine trying to raise a child with those expectations? You know, my oldest son... I knew was going to be a great athlete. I just knew it, that he was going to um, pitch the winning game of the World Series for the Baltimore Orioles. I just knew that was going to happen. So I had him in, you know, every sport you can imagine, baseball, soccer, t-ball, all all that stuff. And my younger son, I knew was going to be a great musician from early on. And he's a good musician. The question is, will he make a living of it or not? We'll see. He's at that point. He's trying. But I had these expectations, and we tried to help them fulfill that. So imagine Mary's thoughts, trying to raise this child Jesus with, with what Gabriel had told her. First of all, you've got to remember that the Jewish people, Mary's people, were in a, in a land that was conquered by Rome. So they were almost slaves, basically. They were just servants and subjugated by the Roman Empire. Is Mary thinking, are you telling me that my son's going to change all this? My son is going to do that? I would be thinking, what do I have to do to keep from messing this up? You know, what classes at the YMCA do I need to get my child in in order to be prepared for this? You know, is, is there a throne room decorum class? Is there a class on how to be a warrior king? Is there a class on how to, I don't know, what, what classes do they how do you How do you prepare your child to do what Gabriel told Mary he would do? Suppose I spoil him and he becomes a lazy slug. Suppose I'm too strict, and, and it kills his spirit, and he's too timid and shy. What if I don't get it right? Is humanity doomed if I'm not the perfect mother? That's what I would be thinking. What if he doesn't eat his vegetables, for crying out loud? I mean, you've you, you got to do this right when you're, when you're raising this, this child under this expectations. So how did Mary do it? How did she get through this unwed pregnancy and raise Jesus? Gabriel said to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. I believe that not only refers to her her conception, I think that also refers to the power that God gave her to be the mother of Jesus all those years, to raise Christ, to be his mother. She was given the power and the strength to do what God asked her to do because she was willing to do it. It seems that God has a habit of asking his people, to do unreasonable things. The Bible is full of these stories. It's basically a story of all that. Abraham was asked to leave his place, go a long, long way in a time when transportation wasn't very good, and go move over there. Moses, a murderer who was hiding in the wilderness, was asked to go back 
to where he committed this crime and then tell the Pharaoh, the king, to let his people leave who were their slaves. Forget about those temples and things they were building, you know. Um, the prophets, Ezekiel, was asked by God to lay on his left side for 365 days and eat food cooked on human dung. That kind of would make your day. Uh, Hosea was asked to marry a prostitute who then had three children by other men, just so God could illustrate a point about how he was unhappy with his people in Jerusalem. Jonah, we know that story. He was asked to go to Nineveh, which happens to be a place that didn't believe in his God or follow his religion, and so he went the other way as far as he could. It was such an unreasonable request in his mind. Paul. Paul was persecuting Christians, having them arrested, helping them get stoned, and God asked him to completely turn around and become a great evangelist for Jesus. But it's not only in those days and in those times. It's today as well that God is asking his people to do unreasonable things. Right here at St. Paul's. A small business owner in his mid-40s with kids in school, three kids in school, one of them in college, was asked to sell his house, sell his business, move to a northern city, go to school, and I'll tell you in a couple of years what I want you to do later. A young man in his mid-twenties at St. Paul's was asked to go to Africa to live and work, to spend his life there so that his work and his, his communications, his life in that country, in that, in that place, would help people understand about Jesus. And oh, by the way, in that country, it's illegal to be a Christian, so don't tell people exactly where you are because it might get you killed. Here at St. Paul's, a woman who had raised her family was at a point of life where it was content, it was easy street, was asked to start a ministry with a big annual event that has raised money for charity. We just celebrated recently giving a million dollars away as, as a parish of St. Paul's, largely because of this. Here at St. Paul's, a grandmother was asked to leave her job, start a new ministry that's involved in helping grandparents share their faith with their grandchildren. These are all unreasonable things. These are not comfortable things that, that God is asking us to do. But not all of these things that God asks us to do are so big or so public. God may be asking a busy executive to stop being so busy and stop being so results-oriented and just think about the 10 or 12 people you encounter every day and how can you help them? What can you do for them? He may be asking somebody in a neighborhood to quit complaining about the neighbor whose grass is always too long and realize that she's a single elderly woman who can't take the heat and can't mow the lawn and your lawnmower works just fine. Why don't you go mow it? He might be asking somebody to change their lifestyle so they have money to give away. He might be asking somebody to take care of a sick mother-in-law. God is full of all kinds of unreasonable and surprising things that he's asking his people to do. And he doesn't just ask special people to do them. He asks all of his people to do them, you and me, all of us. And if we're willing, he gives us the power to do them. And this power comes from the very child that Mary raised, Jesus. Look at, look at that picture on the wall. Just look at the eyes of Mary. Just look into those eyes and ask yourself, what is God asking you to do?
reading from the Gospel of Luke, the birth of Jesus. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. The word of the Lord. This passage is the Christmas story. This is the reason we celebrate Christmas. There's a lot of substance in this passage, and what really is incredible to me is how few words were used to describe such momentous occasions. Mary and Joseph went from Bethlehem, I mean, excuse me, Nazareth to Bethlehem, and all it says is they went up. It's an 80-mile journey, not to mention the fact that she was pregnant, nine months pregnant, on foot, and unmarried. Uh, Think of any couple these days trying to do the same thing, nine months pregnant, unmarried, 80 miles on foot. I don't think they would be a couple at the end of that journey. (laughs) Yet, they're steadfast. Joseph remains by her side. They make it up there. They're not greeted by comfort surroundings. They are not given any rest. They end up in a barn They don't have a bed, and when Jesus comes, he's placed in a feeding trough. Now, I think our society has gotten to this point where we think a manger is this convenient little crib that happens to be in a barn, and that's not the case. It's a feeding trough the animals have been eating out of. I don't know many mothers who would be okay with placing their brand-new baby in a feeding trough. 
And then after that, the angels appear to the shepherds, and they're terrified at first, yet they kind of come around, and they, they hear what the angels have said. They, they'll find a baby who's wrapped in cloths and laid in a manger, and they have the faith to believe them. They go in the middle of the night over to where Jesus is. They find him and are just amazed that it is as they were told. They go out and they tell everybody, and everybody's just wonderstruck that this story is unfolding right before them. Yet, Mary's reaction is what really struck me. You know, I've heard this story, I'm guessing, every year of my life, and I suspect many of you have heard it every year, or at least have heard it before. And the verse that really stepped out and grabbed me this year was verse 19, Mary's reaction. Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. She's just walked 80 miles, nine months pregnant, maybe riding on the back of a donkey, ends up in a barn, and gives birth to our Lord and Savior. She doesn't go out and announce it. She's not, you know, putting a banner up that says, look what I've done. She treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. How humble. And what a great example for us. I really just love those two words, treasure and ponder. And you know, every year it happens. I get struck. I realize what we're celebrating. Sometimes it happens Christmas Eve. Sometimes it's as early as Thanksgiving. This year... It was looking at this passage and trying to really dive in. You know, I think we all kind of go through that. We have nativity scenes everywhere. They're almost on every corner. You have them in your home. And the nativity scene is there to to remind you how humble our Lord's beginnings were, that he was placed in a manger, that they've traveled all this way and are exhausted, yet they're in a barn. And it's almost like they've become so common, they've lost their, their oomph, that you look at them and you're like, oh, yeah, okay, great. Um, I would invite you this year to join me in, leading, in following Mary's example. Truly treasure and ponder what this season is about. When you see a nativity, remember what exactly that means. And think of what our Lord's arrival on earth to live and walk among us means. What that did for us. How that changed our world drastically. Think of how he came into this world. His humble beginnings. And just think of what he means to us. And truly treasure his arrival. Treasure the humility of Mary. The steadfastness of Joseph and the faith of the shepherds. Treasure the birth of our Lord. Amen.
A reading from the Gospel of John. St. John unfolds the great mystery of the Incarnation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to everyone who was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word of the Lord. All right, guys. Merry Advent number four. Uh, look at four candles. Advent number four. Um, you know, I still feel very much like a, a novice to Advent because I was not raised in a church that celebrated Advent. And if one of you are visiting today who was not raised in a church that um, celebrated Advent and made it this far without knowing what Advent is, congratulations, because people who celebrate Advent are super smug about always telling you how what they're doing is really cool and how it's special and how it's different than what everybody else does. Yeah, yeah. So that's, I'm going to be that person. I'm going to tell you exactly how it's, it's really cool because Advent is a kind of a, a time where we pause and reflect and, and we say, you know what, God came. And that's really cool. And God's coming again. So it's this time where we can just kind of reflect on what that means. So, um, so now I celebrate it and I love it. But growing up, I did not celebrate Advent. Uh, but it's not to say that we didn't have um, rituals, uh, which is all kind of a liturgy is. Um, one of the rituals that I had while I was growing up is Christmas specials and Christmas movies. And I know our family isn't unique in this way. Um, a lot of people, some who go to St. Paul's, put this up in my Facebook feed. This is uh, for a single channel, ABC Family. And it's every night there's a different Christmas special on. And so you know when to catch all your favorites. But guys, I'm telling you, this is, this is a liturgy. This is a liturgy. I don't know if this is right one or right two. But this is telling you when to sit, when to stand, where to look, what to say, what to sing. Yeah, this is, so, so this is, and this is how up until a certain point I celebrated, you know, Advent. So when I was asked to do a reflection, I was really hoping that I'd get the passage from Luke in chapter 2. Because uh, that's, the, that's the one from my favorite Christmas special, which is a Charlie Brown Christmas I didn't get that one. I guess it's all about who you know. Um, but even though I celebrate Advent now, you can't take away my Charlie Brown. I, I watch it every year, and 
so I was, I was thinking of the passage that I got, and I was watching Charlie Brown this year, and something stood out to me that I never noticed before. Uh, most of the, the special goes in the same way it always does. Um, and you get to that point where Charlie Brown screams, isn't there anyone who can tell me what Christmas is all about? And uh, see, if I'd gotten this, if I'd gotten this passage, what I'd, I was planning on doing was putting my face on Linus's head. And so, like, I'll just make it. But the problem is, whenever you put my face on anybody with a head covering, it just looks like chubby Al-Qaeda. So that's another good reason why um, I probably was not picked to do this. But, but Charlie Brown screams, is there anyone that can tell us what Christmas is all about? And Linus gets up, and he delivers his speech straight from the Bible. And we're all moved. Charlie Brown finally knows the meaning of Christmas, and we fade to commercial. So it's perfect. So far, so good. But the thing that I never noticed before was then you come back from commercial, and Charlie Brown loses it right away. He goes home. He puts an ornament on his tree. The tree falls down. I killed it. I've ruined Christmas. And I found myself getting really mad. I wanted to shout out, you blockhead, Charlie Brown. You just had it. You just witnessed one of the most beautiful and pure animated segments in the history of the world. And it didn't even take you through commercial break. You know, if they ever add books to the Bible, I'm sure one will be the Charlie Brown special. And it's about you, and you didn't even get through the commercial break. But I'm not really mad at Charlie Brown, mostly because he's made up. Um... Mostly I'm mad at myself because that blockhead is me. I know what Christmas is supposed to be about. I know what it's supposed to mean. I've heard that scripture, not just on TV. I've seen God's hand in my life and I felt his presence over and over and over and over. I forget. And I need to be reminded. Why do I do that? How come I have these moments with God that are so beautiful and so pure and are so full of truth, but then immediately become overwhelmed with busyness and anxiety and melancholy. How come I can't get it right? In a few days, Christmas will be here. Maybe I'll be ready, and probably I won't be. Since I'm the last speaker on the last day of Advent, I don't know how it works, but I think if I filibuster, I might actually be able to keep Christmas from coming. So... You know, if that's something you guys are interested in, we'll see. Um, we'll see how long I can keep it going. Um, but no, Christmas will happen. And maybe we can look for our stories to what that might look like. Because when our stories point to truth, they give us an insight. Christmas happens for Charlie Brown when he's restored to the community. Charlie Brown doesn't end with him walking home by himself, knowing what Christmas is all about. It ends with all of his friends around a Christmas tree singing. Rudolph doesn't end when he's saved from the abominable snowman. His Christmas happens when there are no more misfits. The Grinch's Christmas doesn't come when his heart grows three sizes. It it comes when the Grinch is with all the Who's down in Whoville carving the roast beast. Ebenezer Scrooge's Christmas doesn't come when he wakes up after being visited by three spirits. His Christmas arrives while he's eating Christmas feasts with his nephew. 
George Bailey's Christmas doesn't come when he realizes he doesn't want to kill himself. His Christmas arrives in his house with all of his friends and families gathered around. So Christmas is something that's going to happen, and it's going to happen in community. Christmas is something more than just being able to pull onto the meaning of something. It's about a relational experience that we're all going to share. And that's the beauty of Advent, because it acknowledges that Christmas is coming, but it also acknowledges that something's still not right for us. Even though the kingdom of God is now, it's something that's also going to happen. It's, it's the restoration of creation. So Christmas is about relationship and community, which is why, in this context, I fell in love with this passage from John's Gospel. Because it describes a full narrative arc, and you could call it the ultimate Christmas special. It starts with a holy relationship and a creation fueled by light. But that light isn't all that there was. There was also darkness. The darkness comes to hide the light, but it can't. Everybody, everybody that comes into the light will be restored, redeemed, healed, and brought into community. This story ends with all of us together singing. And so I'd like to end my reflection in the way it started by reading the Gospel of John so you can see that arc. And I'll be reading from Eugene Peterson's translation called The Message. But as Christmas comes, and it will come, I just, my prayer for you would that you would treasure those relationships, mend them where you can, and look forward to the day of the second Advent where we will all gather together, restored, renewed, and sing the gospel according to John. The word was first, the word present to God, God present to the world. The word was God in readiness for God from day one. Everything was created through him. Nothing, not one thing came into being without him. What came into existence was life, and the life was the light to live by. The lifelight blazed out of the darkness. The darkness could not put it out. There once was a man, his name was John, sent by God to point out the way to the lifelight. He came to show everyone where to look, who to believe in. John was not himself the light. He was there to show the way to the light. The lifelight was the real thing. Every person entering life, he brings into light. He was in the world, the world was there through him, and yet the world didn't even notice. He came to his own people, but they didn't want him. But whoever did want him, who believed he was who he claimed, and would do what he said, he made to be their true selves, their child of God selves. These are the God-begotten, not blood begotten, not flesh begotten, not sex begotten. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. The word of the Lord.
an Advent blessing as we prepare these last few days for Christmas. May Almighty God, by whose providence our Savior Christ came among us in great humility, sanctify you with the light of his blessing and set you free from all sin. May he whose second coming in power and great glory we await make you steadfast in faith, joyful in hope, and constant in love. May you who rejoice in the first advent of our Redeemer at his second advent be rewarded with unending life. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you forever.